Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that hits rewind and occasionally fast forward on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host, is Sarah Jane Kemp. And before I throw over to Sarah, a bit of an apology from this me this week. We're recording a little bit earlier in the day than we normally would and I live on basically on a building site. I live on like a new build uh, estate in Ashford and I can keep hearing like building noise and like beeping that sounds like a klaxon single so that's the noise spinning around my head so apologies listeners if you get any of that in the background this week we do aim for like top quality production but we can't always promise that but yeah that's what's spinning around my head this week sarah what's been spinning around yours yeah well firstly i'll just say i haven't heard any building work noise yet rick so um and i can't see where you, where you're living at the moment i can just see your kind of bedroom in the background or your kid's bedroom i think is in the background so <laughs> yeah. uh yeah so i uh, so i'm sure it's all good for now but yeah, so last week we were talking about uh, 2001 and it's really put me into a bit of a uh, 2001 spin. And I found a top hits of 2001 playlist and Rick, it is probably one of the best playlists ever. I've been listening to everything from Drops of Jupiter by Train to yeah. Romeo by Basement Jacks. Um, Jamiroquai, one of my favourites, Little L, you know, it's got Usher on it, Gwen Stefani and Eve. Sunshine Anderson, one of the albums I talked about last week, or for you by Janet Jackson, I realised that I hadn't actually listened to it that much as, a, as an art album in its entirety in 2001. So I've, I feel like I've almost just discovered it, you know, however many years later. Um, and I have to say, it's probably gone up, shot up into my top, if not top 10, then top five albums from just listening to it on repeat for last week. And I've been telling everyone I know to listen to it. Please listen to it, please listen to it. Um, so yeah, how how bizarre is that, Rick? But um, how, about, how about you? What's been on your playlist this week? I guess you just talk about Janet Jackson. I mean, I always think she's like the the one of the, she's almost like an overlooked Jackson because if Michael Jackson's your brother and he's the king of pop, anyone would almost be in the shadow of that. But I also think, yeah, you're right. Her back catalogue has got some some great stuff in it. I'd say probably my favourite Janet Jackson tune, and this is a bit of a cop-out probably, is Scream that she did with Michael. I mean, what a tune that is. It is a big... It's, it's like they look like they're in the cheese grater. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that video, <laughs> if you remember that video. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's... It, but yeah, you're right. She has had a she has had a big career in her own right. But, I mean, she's not Michael, though, is she? You're right. Let's face it. Well, there's always a rumour that it was Michael, just in a wig. I don't know. Did you <laughs> they, ever see that? Like... <laughs> yeah, I did, actually. They do sound so incredibly similar. Um, even when they talk, it's really crazy. There's kind of a, a, a track on, on the All For You album where they're, her and her mate are talking. And uh, it's it does sound like Michael. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely mm. not. Because of what they're talking about, I know it's not Michael. <laughs> a little bit of a hint there. But I think this, for me, this kind of underlines with this podcast, you know, we've been having off-air production meetings recently, listeners. We don't just chuck this together, although we do kind of just chuck it together, to be honest. But, you know, obviously we've covered a lot of indie rock and guitar music, and that's kind of our core, certainly my core, and I know it's a big part of your music fandom. But in reality, you know, we have a much broader taste than that, and we do want to bring some more of those kind of genres into the show don't we there's a lot of indie rock podcasts out there at the moment as well and we think you can get a lot of the similar stuff so we do want to expand a little bit but I was thinking I don't know about you Sarah it'd be good to hear from the listeners and what they'd like to hear are there any bands or scenes or years that they'd like us to delve into so how how do they get in touch with us to kind of chuck some of those ideas around yeah that would be great we always love hearing from you guys Uh, you can email us on um, at demotapespod at gmail.com and we're on Instagram and Twitter at demotapespod we have our own personal um, Instagram and Twitter accounts as well. Mine is at I am Sarah Jane Kemp on Instagram and 
I'm Sarah Jane Kemp on Twitter because it didn't let me have so many characters. And, and what are you, Rick? I'm Rick underscore J underscore Martin on Twitter, and I barely open Instagram. It's like a dormant app on my iPhone. You know when your when your iPhone apps get so dormant, you have to reinstall them to open them. That's kind of Instagram for me. It's probably for the best because Instagram. I've got a bit of a love hate uh, relationship with Instagram. To be honest, we're not that great at Instagram. I probably need to do a bit better on that. But we are there and I do open it and I do have a look at it. So if you do want to get in touch with us on there, you can do. But yeah, you did ask me originally what I've been listening to this week. And it's been fairly singular as far as I'm concerned. There's one album that I've been absolutely caning and that's Shame's Drunk Tank Pink. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago that January this year was a bit of a dry period for for new music. Uh, I think we talked about Zane, not Zane Malik, Zane's new album and Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees. And I think Sleaford Mods have got one out this week. Um, but yeah, Shame being only the only thing coming out in January this year that was really exciting me. And also that thing I told you about where band, indie bands back in the day used to release albums in January because it's a quiet time and it's a good chance to get into the charts. And it looks like it's happening again. So Drunk Tank Pink by Shame is on course for the top 10. It's actually in the midweeks, it's um, number six, which is great because based on a week's listening, I absolutely bloody love this album. Um, you know, it's, it's the follow up to their 2018 debut Songs of Praise, which I also loved, but they've kind of gone up a level. Um, you know, I, th I think I talked about them on, on a previous show. They're kind of like, they're kind of part of that arty, slightly grotty South London scene. I think you described them as angular. They've got that kind of angular post-punk sort of sound. But yeah, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant record. It's already my favourite album of the year, although I mean, we're only three weeks into the year. <laughs> I was going right? to say, we're only three weeks in, but... Um, it might stay that way for a while, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the other thing, um, I saw them quite randomly playing live on the TV. And like, I, I often think live performances on the TV often aren't very good. Like Even on stuff like Jules Holland, the sound isn't right. But yeah, I was watching randomly Soccer AM this week. Well, not randomly. It's one of the shows I watch most of the time. You know, I'm a big, big football fan outside of music, but that's definitely for another podcast. I know you, you, would, you wouldn't even be able to tell me how many players are on a football team, right? I know you have Do no You know what? Interest. That's actually really funny. I, I actually wouldn't. No, <laughs> I've got, exactly. I've got no idea. 11, that's... 12? <laughs> close, yeah, 11. Uh, so that's it. Another... Oh, brilliant. Yeah, you were close enough. But, um, I said yeah, 11. That, that, that's for another show. But um, yeah, so they're on Soccer AM. It wasn't them playing live on Soccer AM, although to be fair, that show does get some quite good guitar rock on it. It's mainly lad rock, right? And bits of hip hop sometimes. But this was like a, they call it an exclusive performance that as far as I can tell, was recorded live sometime, I think last year, because you could hear crowd noise, unless they've done what they do in football and pumped some crowd noise in. But it was, it's probably the best live performance I've ever seen on TV of, of Nigel Hitter, which is like the second track on the uh, on the album and I, I think I immediately sent it over to you and said listen, listen to this without prejudice it's on Soccer AM which I know you've got no interest in but this is bloody brilliant and what, what did you think when I sent that over? Yeah well it took me a while to get to it because because you'd put it listen to this it's been on Soccer AM I saw Soccer AM and thought oh <laughs> literally I was like oh God. okay fine but I was quite busy that day I remember sitting on the sofa and opening it up in the evening fully expecting to kind of close it pretty quickly and oh my god Rick like I was just blown away as well. I, I couldn't actually believe how good it was, like the, the energy in that performance. Um, and like you said, I was a bit confused about the crowds. I didn't really know what was going on because obviously we're in a pandemic and that's not really allowed. So I didn't really get it. But 
um, you'd, I don't think you really needed the crowds, but he was performing as if he was at Glastonbury. Like that's mm. what, that's what I thought about it. And um, yeah, it just reminded me, well, I think I messaged you and said, oh, do you think this is the new, uh, this is the new lad rock. And the, what I thought, what I meant by that was, you know, normally I'd associate bands like Kasabian to be on a, a TV programme like that. And to be honest, I don't like Kasabian, never have, never will, as much as that pains you to hear me say it, Rick. Um, but I, what I do love is that the kind of music that used to get me really excited about going to see live seems to be, make, seems to be coming back in quite a big way. And I'm really excited about that. And I think I said to you, um, I think we were having a bit of a chat about it and the, the kind of bands that we, we would love to go and see if they um, started touring again. And Shane was one of them, Idols. Who else was on that list? I can't remember now. We were talking, Fontaine's DC. You know, if they, if they did like a trio lineup and went on tour together, I, I, am, I am there with bells on. I think you're right. And I think we were discussing this on a previous episode about scenes. Like you couldn't really call Idols Fontaine's DC and Shame as a scene because Idols are from Bristol, Fontaine's DC are from Dublin and Shame are from South London. That's not a scene. I mean, to draw, you could draw like, you know, a massive triangle between those places. But they definitely share something, some of that kind of righteous punk energy, some of the same... Um, influences and you're right like if anyone's got any sense package that up as a tour and put it on at bloody Wembley Stadium for 10 nights and you'd probably fill it 100 percent. I mean we'd buy tickets all 10 nights I think but um (laughs) (laughs) I do think you know I I, I'm genuinely excited you can probably hear it in my voice I'm genuinely excited to see what's to come with this kind of music making a comeback I think it's here I think it's happening Absolutely. So that's probably, I think that's the sound of now, right? So that's probably a nice segue. And we try and get segues into here. So it does sound like it's not just completely thrown together into who we've got on for this week's guest. Because I guess if shame are the sound of London now, our guest we've got on this week um, from the Holloways is the sound of London 15 years ago. And they really were at the heart of, of the London scene 15 years ago, weren't they, the Holloways? It's Bryn um Bryn Fowler bassist with the band who we've got on for a little bit of a chat and I bet you've done your usual Desert Island Discs style intro again Rick I hope this doesn't get boring anytime soon because I quite like it well it's not boring for me and I think it's always good because we can we can work on the assumption that listeners know who these bands are and if you were around at the time that we were you probably have but you know looking in some of the stats in uh, in our audio boom platform which is where we're hosted I did notice that you know some of our, our core audience yet yeah, is around our age we do get a portion of our audience who are younger and a portion of our audience who are older so I think it's always good to just jog people's memories particularly for a band that split 10 years ago right so yeah I've done the uh Kirsty Young style uh Desert Island Disc intro so here we go so the Holloways formed in North London specifically the Holloway area centered around legendary pub and music venue Nambuka in the mid-2000s after building a raucous reputation on the live circuit, they hit the UK Top 20 in 2006 with Generator, a calypso pop testament to living in the moment. A series of unfortunate events befell the band in the subsequent years, with their label going bust, Nambuka burning down with their equipment and demos in it, and band members quitting in frustration before the band split in 2011. Now, 10 years on, the band had been due to reform to support Revenant and the Makers before COVID forced the cancellation of the tour, meaning a reunion feels tantalisingly close. And that's probably a good place to lead into the interview. So I guess we can find out a little bit about the past, present and potential future of uh, the Holloways. So should we get Bryn on the line? Let's do it. So on the line, we've got Bryn Fowler, bassist in 
Yeah, the Holloways. And yeah, it's a blustery rain-swept night where I am tonight. Where How is it where you are and kind of how's lockdown treating you? Well, it, it was blustery earlier. It must have blown to wherever you are now, as it's now just a calm, very silent night. I, uh, mo- I moved out of London a couple of years ago and it always freaks me out how quiet it is. Uh, and that's kind of been lockdown for me. It's been been quiet. Lots of time to kind of think about stuff and, and doing a few bits. It's been fun. Reconnected quite a bit with Alfie and Dave, actually. Um, mm. We've been doing a few kind of Skypey sessions and yeah, that's been nice. But it's been, it's, I think the overwhelming thing about lockdown is strangeness, right? It's a strange nothing kind of time. Yeah, and you're kind of synonymous with North London, aren't you, with the band? But, but I know that you're not from North London. We do our research on this show. Is it the Midlands, <laughs> Lichfield that you're... Yeah, you're probably, yeah. Is yeah. that where you're back now or have, have, you, have you moved somewhere else? Uh, it is where I'm back now, yeah. So my life's kind of split in, into two halves. The Growing up in the Midlands and moving to North London with a kind of vague dream based on various Britpop songs that I listened to in the 90s uh, that, that came true. Um yeah, I mean, we got very lucky with choosing North London as a base, and uh, obviously, what happened from there. Amazing. I'm I'm also from the Midlands. I'm from I'm from Nottingham, so we've had a few people on from the Midlands recently. So we're representing for the for the good old Midlands. Yeah. I love it. I also <laughs> came down to London and kind of moved. I lived in Muswell Hill for a bit, so I always used to kind of be around the, the North London scene. So that was yeah, 16 years later, it's uh kind of flown by but I'm I'm not back in Nottingham like you're back in Lichfield so I'm still still down here hanging around <laughs> well yeah I couldn't afford to stay in London anymore I've got two kids now so oh uh, well fair I don't have any so there we go <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah I think I spent the majority of my yeah, I lived in yeah, 18 years in London and did at least uh was it how many 14 of those in in and around uh N7 and N19 when you said uh, when you said you were lucky lucky to choose North London, why did you say that in particular, like North at the time? Um, so I I went to London to well, I went to London with a veil of going to uni, which I did do uni. I know I did do it and stuff, but I was in North London. And to be honest, I listened when I was in my teenage years, listened to a lot of you kind of like Blur and Sleeper and bands like that. So much of their stuff and the folklore around that was Camden. So for me, when it was where you're going to move to in London, it was well, I'm going to move as close to Camden as I could, and that's why that's why I ended up in Holloway. One of the reasons, you know, that and it was affordable, uh, and so ended up there and quite happy to have ended up there. And like I say, it was quite serendipitous, uh, kind of ended ending up there. Yeah, because I was living right up in. Right up in Southgate, in far, far north London, you know, near, near Cockfosters, and that, that's where I went to uni up there. And I was uh, helping at a drama school. I used to do kind of light and sound technician stuff at a drama school. And one of the parties ended, and there was a big, we, we were at a big, you know, just at a pub. And one of this guy walks in who wasn't at the drama school uh, and starts talking to other girls, and I start talking to him. And we're the only two people there that weren't at the drama school, and it turned out mm. to be Alfie. And he was, and we didn't even exchange numbers or anything. We just had a great laugh together. And then he, and he mentioned it. He lived in Holloway, and I was like, oh, I might be moving there in a month, six weeks, or something. Hadn't decided at that point. And then we moved in. The day after we moved in, I walked out my front door, took ten, maybe fifteen steps down the street towards Holloway Road, saw this scruffy-looking guy walking out of his house, and it was Alfie walking out of his house. Oh, no way! Randomly, had moved literally, yeah, five doors away from each other. Wow. So it was meant to be from the very beginning, right? 
<laughs> That's why we call ourselves the Holloways, because we were like, yeah, the Hol Holloway brought us together. None of us were from Holloway, but we all, but spiritually the band and the sound is definitely, you know, massive draws from, from the kinks. We even did some recording at Conk, like secretly that Ray Davies wasn't supposed to find out about. Mm. Um, with one of his studio engineers in his free time was like, oh, you can record here, but if Ray comes, you're just my friends. Can you just paint a little bit of a picture of what, what Holloway was like? I mean, I, I guess I know, because I did move to Holloway, uh, what must it have been, about 2008, 2009 for me. And I lived on Kingsdown Road, which is about three yeah. roads up from, from Nambuka. But I guess, can you just kind of paint a picture for the listeners, you know, particularly those maybe who don't live in London and know the area as well? So Holloway Road is yeah coming from, not from London as well is how I kind of imagined London it's really it's really multicultural and really integrated you've got a lot of Irish have settled there but you've also got quite a large black community and Jewish community around and every other kind of you know immigrant to the UK kind of feels like they settled in Holloway and, and it really you've got one road that starts at, at the archway roundabout with and it's just road with pub discount store pub 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 Back then it had more music venues and it was a little bit more lively kind of on music scene than it is right now. Um, Nambuka obviously being one of them. Opposite Nambuka, you had the late night place called The Keys, uh, which was a prop, which was in the daytime, a really traditional Irish pub full mm. of old men, but it had a, like a four or five AM license and it turned into a, to a proper kind of towny nightclub. But it was all the local people mm. were there and it was, you know, it, 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 it had its own little vibe. I mean, Holloway's itself is just one road. You know, it goes, like I say, starts at, starts at Archway. At that point in time, it had a record shop called Pure Groove right up in Archway, which is a huge part of our success. Um, you know, they, they did a lot of in-stores and it kind of helped a lot of bands on that scene just kind of start out. And then right down the other end, you've got the garage and you had the Buffalo Bar then as well mm -hmm. and the whole the whole of Holloway Road felt certainly at that time like it was based around kind of entertainment and having fun I mean the uni wasn't anywhere near as developed as it is now but there were so many pubs and so many venues and yet you had this kind of one side you had um this kind of veneer of niceness you had a you had kind of Highgate to the north and Tucknell Park and Angel but then if you started to head out east you very quickly get to to um to Seven Sisters and Finsbury Park and the places that had a much more of a rough angle. And it just made a really nice melting pot. You felt it walking down Holloway Road. That first kind of month, I'd just walk up down Holloway Road when I wasn't going, you know, go, going to work. And you'd be so many different people and no, no aggro, no kind of sign saying bag thieves operate in this area mm. and things like that. Just mm. a lot of people getting on with their lives. And it made it a real unique experience. And I think. Like I said, we called ourselves the Holloways because it felt like a special place to us, Holloway did. It wasn't some kind of hackneyed, like, oh, let's try and think of something that's going to really identify to us. Thing. We mm -hmm. identified with, with the area, kind of, yeah, there's that creativeness. And so how long, how long ago did you leave Holloway then? Were you, were you um, there the whole time until two years ago? Or? Not the whole time. I did a little bit. Um, so when the band, when we were in our kind of ascendancy and Nambuka was getting quite... At that point, I mean, it's probably when when you when you moved there, Rick, kind of 2008, kind of, well, a bit before like 2007, 2008, Nambuka was getting quite wild, which was fun. Mm, mm. But it also, us being quite central to that and being on tour a lot of the time, I definitely took the opinion that I need to be able to go home. 
So I did move mm. out of London, out of Holloway at that point, I moved over to Golders Green, little shared house over there, just to be able to get that bit of space of, actually, I'm going to go home now, because that was the thing about, about Nambuka and about that, that scene overall, was that you, know, you, you lived it, and lots of people lived it, you know. It wasn't just a thing where there was kind of three people staying up all night. There was 30, 40 different people every night staying up every night. Mm. Mm. And let's hit rewind a little bit. So, you know, you mentioned yeah. how the first day you moved there, you you saw Alfie there, obviously, the, who became the front man of the Holloway. So how did that, how did the stars align in terms of a band coming together? How, how did you bring bring that from being randomly in the same place to then, to then you know, bringing the Holloways together? So it started very much from from that day. You know, I said to Alfie, where's good to go? He'd been to Nambuka a couple of times. Uh, they had an open mic on a Sunday run by Jay, who's now called, well, he, Jay, Jay McAllister, our manager, who's been, now performs under the name Beans on Toast. Yeah, yeah, remember him well, yeah. Yeah, so by Jay and Dave Danger, our drummer, who, well, he didn't know he was our drummer at that time. So Alf had already met them at this place that he thought was cool, called Nambuka, and he knew the bar staff and his girlfriend was working there. So we went, great, kept me there for a beer over a beer he literally said to me oh, i was thinking of making a band i'm in this band at the moment but it's kind of falling apart like you seem pretty cool i mean this is literally day three of meeting the guy mm. you seem pretty cool do you play instruments i said well you you know kind of play the bass i haven't got i didn't actually have a bass at the time i'd gone back to playing the guitar um so the next week we went to denmark street alfie played me some demos of songs i was like you know i really like this let's buy a bass so went and bought the cheapest bass I could on Denmark Street, which I think, you know, Tim Pan Alley was such a great place. It's such a shame that it's not Tim Pan Alley anymore. Mm. And then mm. set about listening to Alfie's demos and learning a bit. Me and him then literally, we, Alf was a great, a great networker for meeting people. People loved him straight away. And he'd been around there a lot longer than I had. So he just kind of, he was like, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just see how it goes and we'll meet some people. And we actually played with, uh, a couple of different people first went around a couple of people's houses and jammed a bit and it wasn't really working out um one guy called Tristan Ivamy who's now a relatively well-respected music producer produced our second album produced one of Frank Turner's albums mm. he was supposed to be in the band and he didn't turn up to a practice so he <laughs> was like oh you're not in it <laughs> and then um and then we were in Nambuka on a Sunday I was there with my girlfriend Alfred was there with his girlfriend and this young kid gets on the stage and straight away like my girlfriend was like you should ask him to be in the band he's really hot and I was like well you know what you're saying we don't need you know we're, we're pretty good and then he started playing it and he was just phenomenal he's just playing Bob Dylan covers and it was Rob and he he just captivated this audience I think he only moved to London three or four weeks ago at that point in time he's mm. mm. a green grocers in Crouch End but he just this little 18 year old fresh-faced kid had the whole pub palm of his hand it was just amazing watching him so we did after that we said let's buy you a drink we're starting a band do you fancy being part of it and he said well yeah why not you know such is rob's way you know i think he did that his whole life was just mm -hmm. said yeah a lot and so we had the three of us we didn't have a drummer we hadn't even tried out a drummer at that point and um and then it was at a party alfie and and Rob were playing some songs upstairs, not in the bar at Namuka, at the kind of flats upstairs above it. And Dave was there. Dave was like, oh, this, like, I like, this sounds really good. Like, can I be your drummer? 
And we said, yeah, that'd be great. Are you really cool? And you've got loads of good connections. We didn't even know you were a drummer. It turns out that Dave had been a drummer, again, kind of similar to me in his younger years before, before moving to London. And, um, and it just, you know, like our first practice session that we had, we went to a little place called the Islington Arts Factory, mm. um, which is kind of on in between uh, Camden Road and Holloway Road, so converted church. In rehearsal rooms, kind of two pounds an hour. So it was a little community project. And oh God, it just, it really was. We played like, two songs, we played a song called London Town and a song called uh, Soul for Sale, was the other song that we used to have. And it just gelled instantly. And it was, yeah, it was unbelievably magical. It was, you know, it's the, and that's why I said dreams come true, because it is the kind of thing you sit in your bedroom at, you know, 15, 16, listening to the songs and thinking, oh, I'd love to be in a band. I'd love mm, to have mates mm. to do this. And then to meet three people that you're all so different from different places, but connect on a level that you never realise you could connect so quickly on with people. And it was from that moment we just, you know, Alfie quit his job, I think, the next day after that rehearsal. Yeah, you know, I quit my job kind of maybe a month after that. Rob didn't have a job at the time. Mm. Dave what, what, was promoting what were you doing? What, what were you doing though at the time? What, what did you, what did you jack uh, in for, working, for the rock and roll, roll dream? I, I was working at Middlesex University uh, as a technician in the music and theatre department, uh, helping kids put plays on and make sound and lights for them. What was Alfie doing? Alfie was working for ITV as a scheduler, oh, okay. uh, which is quite ironic because he's got the worst timekeeping <laughs> of any human being ever. But yeah, he um, he worked in there. There's a funny thing about that. We realised that we had met on the phone previously. I, I used to work for a, for an edit company in Camden. Uh, we did lots of, we, and I worked in the library there store, where we stored all the tapes. And he used to phone up to order tapes from me. Hmm. Hmm. So we realised that we actually, yeah, we'd met kind of a year before we did meet. I think it's weird that at the time you had Towers of London as well, where Donny Tourette worked in TV as well. I'm not sure how well known that is, yeah. but he worked as like a music consultant for Sky. So maybe there was a little, there was a little weird thing going on there, wasn't there? The link between all the, <laughs> link between the different industry, creative industries. But uh, go, going back to the music for a second, yeah, um, thinking about back then, so what year was it when you all moved down? I, I, I can't remember if we'd actually said the year. It was kind of 2000. Uh, so we're talking about, um, I mean, I moved to, me and Alfie moved to London. Actually, me, Alfie and Dave, I think, all moved to London in 2000. It was 2000, so it's not long after that. What, what was, because you were talking about your influences, you know, you're listening to a lot of Blur at the time when you moved down. What was, that, what was the music scene actually like when you got to London? Because Blur will sort of, their heyday was over by then, right? Oh, so yeah, all of the new kind of, what was coming through at the time uh, when I, you started, uh, started living in London? When I started living, so 2000 till 2003, it was a lot more kind of DIY stuff. We used to go to Camden and go to the Camden Palace, the night called Feet First every Wednesday that was their kind of indie and rock night. I think a lot of the music that I listened to and that I saw live, it was a lot of just local-ish bands. I think everything was kind of waiting for the next kickoff. And I remember when, when the kind of strokes and stuff like that started to hit and then the Libertines hit, everything seemed to be, suddenly there was a lot more people at the gigs. Mm. And it was that, it was that you know, kind of post-punk revival 
that really that really did kick off any semblance of a scene again. You know, I, I remember being there, and it was there were lots of people making music, but there wasn't any collective scene. And then it really did, really did suddenly happen where you you were going to a gigs at the Barfly, and there'd be three of you in the crowd, and then you'd go in a month's time, and they'd be sold out, and it would be a very similar artist. Like they wouldn't have had a big profile, and you know you kind of forget what it was like before. You know, even before MySpace was happening, you know, it was really hard to find out about this thing. So you did stand there and think, how the hell did you guys all know about this? Mm. Like we, mm. And we knew because we had a flyer from the last time we were there. And it was just a collective thing that happened. It was just one of those those moments, I think, that a lot of people have been inspired to be making music. And, and then this kind of rock and roll renaissance happened where guitars were suddenly cool again. And they hadn't really been from, you know, what, probably from like, like 98 until 2004, 2005, there wasn't a lot of guitar music, you know, and then like I said, I think the Strokes were a big influence in the UK scene that they came out and showed record companies in particular that they could probably put some money behind guitars again. And in terms of, you know, we're talking as a quite a fertile scene at that time, you know, particularly you really made your name on the live circuit in yeah. London but did you feel that there were almost pockets of scenes you know you had your East London scene that I think that you could draw a connection with what you you guys are doing you know you played with baby shambles and bands like that and we'll go on to that later on but you know you were very tied to the North London scene obviously because you associated oh. with Nambuka so how did that kind of play out because I think it's different now than it was then yeah I think it definitely is different I mean there were yeah scenes and there were scenes within scenes I mean you talk about the North London scene and you'd say you know, Holloway was its own scene. You know, Nambuka was a scene on its own. You had bands that were barely known outside of that pub, hmm. um, but were known with women in that pub. I remember when we went to Japan, actually, they kept referring to us as Thamesbeat. And we were always like, we're not Thamesbeat. We're from North London. It's very different. And and the guy from the record company has to sit down and go, no, he's like, they don't really know the difference. They don't, mm. you know, the audience mm. has been sold Thamesbeat as the new London sound. And of course, you know, out of Thamesbeat, you know, the Mystery Jets and Larrick and Love are the two names that, that spring to mind from that. Yeah. But, you know, the North London scene, it was very separate. But at the same time, everyone had to play each other's gigs. So I remember going out, going over to East London and playing with Cazelles. And I mean, I love Cazelles music. And as guys, they're good guys. But there was a lot of animosity. And we, had to, we, went, on, um, we went on after them. We headlined over them a show. On their home turf and it was not a nice atmosphere in the dressing room you know mm. until after the show and a few drinks have been had and we all got to sit down and be friends with each other i think you know in their heads they were like what are you doing come you know you're coming over here to east london to and and you play your headline over us we're east london we don't come to nambuka and headline over you guys mm. and and the ridiculous thing is, as the crow flies, I mean, I'm doing, you know, that thing where you, you imagine you're sat in a car on a bus and you're driving from one place to another at speed, like a Madonna video or something, right? I, I can see in my head that it's not that far, really, by road, traffic, not, not you know, withstanding, from somewhere like Nambuka to, say, 93 feet east or something. It's not that far it's by true. road. Probably do it in 20 minutes. But, yeah, you, what you're saying is it's like the Wild West. You know, you've got your area over there and your turf over there. It's like and, a turf um, war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except for I think it was a lot in – a lot of it was because because the scenes were so separate, you got to play your gigs. So we did a lot of gigs in Holloway, a lot of gigs in Camden. And, and then as we got a bit bigger, we did do more. We did go out and start doing East London and a bit of South London. And they were our first – 
kind of forays into meeting those bands so we'd read about them in some like fly or maybe in the enemy or something like that and you didn't really know anything about them at all apart from that they were the big guns over there and and you ended up yeah feeling feeling animosity until you all sat in a room together and you went oh actually we're all just, we're all just people trying to make music and you were really good tonight oh no you were really good tonight and hmm. you know, suddenly that animosity kind of fades away and i'm sure some of them have got animosity towards us we probably had a lot more animosity towards people than we realized at the time because it happened you as much as you can be collaborative in the music industry it is still that guy's got oh my god I'm, it's jealousy you know you're you're out there to be the best you can and play to as many people as you can and it's an amazing job but when you watch someone else come on the scene and and skyrocket away from you 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 definitely i think i think most musicians particularly of the holloway size would be lying if you weren't a little bit jealous that yeah, you watch a band like like the Wombats, who, you know, we we work with them a lot, and I know they're from Liverpool. And we're not talking about that, but I'm just talking about how yeah, we were the big guns, and then they came in down to London, and suddenly they're a headline over us. And, yeah, playing Brixton and places like that. Yeah. But I guess I guess when you think about you know you talked about your rivalries there, but I guess my my, my the way I saw it from the outside, your crew was people like Frank Turner. Yeah. Who I think one of you guys shared a flat with Kid Harpoon, who probably more of an underground name, never really got the mainstream recognition, but went on to have a really great career as a songwriter. Yeah. So they, they, were, they were your crew, but who else would you kind of, when you look back, when you talk about that scene that sprung up around the Nambuka and Holloway, who else would you would you kind of remember as being in core to that? Uh, I mean, the, the scene started out really, I mean, we, we were, we get on the coattails of a band called Special Needs. Um, those guys were, those guys were the start of that scene. You know, they had a residency at Nambuka. They did all the kind of stuff there. I mean, those guys are definitely part of it. Um, Jamie T actually was a big part of that scene. Okay. He, he played a lot. Um, we did a lot of parties with him. He used to borrow my acoustic bass to just do a just do a random thing on stage. Um, we one thing we we as a band were lucky with was because of J and Dave. They ran a night uh, in central London called Frog, uh, actually at the Mean Fiddler every Saturday where they had mm, mm. it was a big night so we were lucky enough at Nambuka to end up with these bigger bands that wouldn't have that coming in and have an after parties at Nambuka or coming the day before or they were aware of it so we ended up with with the scene I mean it's how we ended up with Baby Shambles you know, our, our first ever gig in London was supporting Baby Shambles at Nambuka wow um, and we only got that because Dave knew their their drummer at the time and a girl called Gemma doing the drumming and um, I mean, they, they'd just been chucked out of XFM show at the Astoria because uh, they were really late. And they phoned up and said, look, we've got, you know, a thousand people who want to come to a show. We'll do it at your pub. But Gemma wants to see your band play, Dave. So you've got mm. to support us. Um, that was a legendary night, though. Was that the night where it, it basically descended into a riot and like the... Security were whipping kids with with cables and stuff like that. I mean, it's one of those that's almost one of those fabled Bam Baby Shambles moments, isn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely insane. And um, and yeah, we that was our first ever live gig um, in London. Yeah, we'd done a couple of kind of safety shows where we'd gone and been like, oh, can we can we play in front of people? And um, so we were lucky, and Nambuka was lucky that that the scene we had people like that, you know, the Mystery Gets come and play quite a lot of, quite a lot on the scene. People like Dustin's Bar Mitzvah, who I thought were from North London, but turns out they were from, they were from Godhawk Road. When I, when I got their album, I was like, you've got a song about Godhawk Road? Like, yeah, we're from, we're from Godhawk Road. And, mm. and um, Good Shoes is another one that comes to mind. These are all people that played so regularly at Nambuka 
that they were part of our you're, scene. Yeah, you're, you're bringing the memories back with all these with all these band names, but they're, they're different to ones we've talked about. Like when we're talking about different scenes and things like that, they're different to the bands we've talked about with, say, the Paddingtons who we got on uh, a couple of weeks ago or different people that we've yeah. had on. But I want to know, um, so after, you know, your debut album, uh, So This Is Great Britain, and you released that in November 2006, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, after signing with TVT Records. And uh, how did that come about? How did you end up signing with them? And, and can you remember much of the creation of your album? And, and yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. So we were doing what I assume was quite a normal thing that bands did at the time, where we... We'd uh, we'd made a bit of a name for ourselves on the on the on the live scene. We'd done a self-released EP. You know, we'd done Generator ourselves, uh, and I think we did Two Left Feet ourselves. Yeah. Oh no, we did Happiness and Penniless. So we did Generator and Two Left Feet as a double A side, and then we did Happiness and Penniless on our own Sensible Records label, which has got us a bit of recognition. And uh, we had these record exec coming to shows. You know, we didn't know necessarily if they were there or not. And this one kept coming, a guy called Jonathan Green, kept coming and you know, he approached Jay, who was managing us at the time after a gig and was like, look, you know, I'm really interested. Let's get the guys in to do a thing. You know, at the time we'd spoken with kind of Universal about doing a thing and we'd start spoken with Hut, I think, a couple of other record labels about doing bits. TVT came in uh, with a really big sales pitch. You know, they were completely independent, which really appealed to us. Uh, you know, we really, I think every band loves that idea of being able to make it on their own terms and with an independent label. Uh, you know, we, they came, we're completely independent. We're relatively new to the UK market, but we're huge in the States. Mm. We've got a lot of backing with, they, with this kind of stuff. We've not got a lot of experience with, like, with guitar bands in the UK, but that means that you're going to have a main kind of focus. And I think at the time they had a Scottish band and they had the Towers of London on their books at the time. Uh, and then we were the we were the kind of the next one that they wanted to sign. And they, yeah, Jonathan came in with a deal, a really you know, like a five album deal. They owned their own publishing thing as well, so the publishing deal came along with it, and it all just seemed like oh, this is going to be great. Um, and we signed the deal in Nambuka, and then we went to a place called the Holloway Cafe for a slap up breakfast uh, to celebrate. Um, and yeah, and then. Yeah, the process of the album started. I think we we got again. We we played a show. We played a show at the Hundred Club and produced. And it was a show for producers to come down and be like, "Oh, look, do you want to produce mm. this band's album?" And we ended up with Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley of Madness fame uh, be, coming and being really, really keen, really keen. And and Rob was actually a big Madness fan and Death School fan, which was um, uh, one of those bands after that. That, uh, so he was really pushing for them. And out of all the producers that kind of expressed more of interest, they were the ones as well. We all said, yeah, actually, Mandis did some really good stuff. You know, the North London connection, obviously, for us, Sanger. And we did a lot of kind of scary stuff as well. So we thought this, this could work really well. Yeah, I mean, when I was listening to back to your albums uh, again, a couple, you know, in in preparation for this uh, interview, I, Madness, without you mentioning it, there was definitely something that came through, not as a as the primary influence, but like there's a sprinkling of that of that kind of stardust, I think, from from Madness in there, and I suppose that kind of leads me in to talking about kind of the sound of the album and and maybe some of the lyrical themes, because I think 
there's an interesting juxtaposition there. You, you were quite a fun band, and a lot of the energy, I think, around your band was based on the live shows. And, you, you know, you're a serious band, but you weren't serious, serious, if you know what I mean. Yeah. This isn't stare at your shoes music. Yeah, you know, the title, uh, you know, about this is Great Britain, and you're talking about I've got a lyric here. Uh, Britain was a sinking ship that's full of shit and someone's nicked the oars. So, you know, I guess some quite sort of gritty social realism there. So how did that kind of come together that you had the fun side, but also I think lyrically you were holding a mirror up to Britain and sort of trying to tell it how it was? I think, I mean, the fun side definitely came from the four of us just having so much fun together all the time. Yeah, Every time we stepped out on that stage, we could have been doing anything backstage. You know, we could have been in different rooms for a week before it. But walking out on the stage together, it all just melted into an amazing party for us. And, and we were always very conscious of making sure that the crowd had a good show. If all the rehearsals, you know, when we, we, we were all set up being like, no, like we have to make sure people are paying money to come watch us play. Like this has got to be good. And for that to be good, we were like, it's got to be fun. Like we're fun guys. We enjoy immensely what we do. And it is an interesting juxtaposition with, with the with a lot of the lyrical content of the album. I mean, but, yeah. It's very Alfie, wrote a lot of that first album lyrics, you know, but then even Rob's ones, Rob's ones are probably the more melancholy, you know, got Malcontented one was one of Rob's on the first album, mm -hmm. um, which is probably the most melancholy song in terms of lyrical content when you listen to it and you start to understand it, particularly, you know, knowing what we know, what I know now about, about Rob and his personal demons, you know, that song is, is in a slightly different light. But then I suppose, like, so this is Great Britain. We just listened to those lyrics that Alfie had written and we'd say, yeah, well, yeah, it does sound like it. Like, do we do we want to be going down the, this route, is I suppose what we were kind of saying. We weren't mm. kind of saying that we are at the end point. That's why it's a question. You know, so this is Great Britain. It, is, this, is this where we are? Is this where we want to be? Um, there is at that point in, in culture where uh, celebrity culture was really starting to come out. You know, we were deep into uh, into... Um, Big Brother and stuff like that, and, and reality stars being being stars. You know, they weren't, were they? You know, before two thousand, there wasn't anybody who'd been a reality TV star, and then they'd start by two thousand four, five. They really are starting to be everywhere, and it was, I suppose, the fun bits. It, it was things like, you know, we did. So this is Great Britain. It's a really serious song about, you know, what's actually going wrong. Do we want this to be to be where we are? And then we sat in a rehearsal room, and Rob was playing. Uh, what we call the pirate riff, which is the end bit, the kind of jig bit at the end. And we went, oh, that's really great. We've got to, we, that's really fun. We've got to get it in a live show somehow. And so it ended up at the end of this really serious song. We ended up with this, this pirate jig. Um, and it was, you know, those bits were born out of our love of just having fun with it. And the lyrical content uh, and the songs themselves were born out of what we were thinking about and you know, the, way, the way the world was heading at that time. And it's interesting to listen back 15 years on, you know, particularly that line, Britain being a sinking ship, it's full of shit and someone's nicked the oars. I mean, thinking about what's going on now, well, like sinking ship's probably going a bit far, but it's interesting. it was very interesting to listen back to an album like that, pre-recession, I think, pre-certain yeah. things that had happened, and you think, well, actually, some of this is, is quite relevant again 15 years on, you know? Yeah, I, I, definitely, I definitely think this is, this is Great Britain, with the, yeah, with the song, it is... It was remarkably present a lot of it, you know, we, with the talk about, you know, the ever-growing connection to America and, and how close do we want that to be, you know? Yeah, that, like I say, pre-recession, we were certain, and, and pre-Trump, 
we were heading really close to America. And even the start of Trump's presidency, it felt like, you know, our politicians here really wanted to be super, super close to America. And I suppose it's, it's, it's an album about Great Britain that's all sung by people who are growing and living in London, but are not from London. So you do have that outside eye looking in kind of mentality to it. And, and you see these things in a different light. Um, but then we have songs like Generator and Generator is just a song about having a, having a good time. I suppose the album's, it's an album of dark and light. It is that, you know, what's going on outside and in your own head. And then, well, yeah, let's all deal with that. Let's find a way through that and deal with that collectively instead of being on your own and instead of feeling disconnected and you can do it. There's other people with you. There's other people that feel that way. So let's all feel that way together and have a big party. Yeah, mm. uh, that's what brings, well, music often brings people together in that sense, doesn't it? But speaking yeah. of Generator, you've just uh, you hit, hit on that. Um, that song, incredibly catchy. I remember I stayed in a hostel once in Berlin called the Generator Hostel. Hey, and there. honestly, that song, <laughs> your song, would just not leave my head the whole kind of four days I was staying there. Actually, towards the end, I was like, I never want to hear this song again. Um, obviously, I, I love that song. I think it's brilliant, but you can imagine, right? But um, yeah. it's, it's kind of the song you're best known for as well. And it went into the top 20 and it spent more than three months there. And I think that isn't kind of normal for an indie song. And particularly at that time, they normally go into about for about a week and then then disappear. So what what are the memories of that time? And am I right in thinking that uh, that song was also on a Butlins advert? <laughs> that, that is probably your biggest achievement. <laughs> it was. It was either a Butlins advert. Well, it was on the Butlins advert, but we got to choose Butlins advert. Well, we, didn't, we could have said no to both of them, but we had a Butlins advert and a Pedigree Chum advert <laughs> at the same time. Um, we went for Butlins because we've all got fond memories of Butlins from from kids and and stuff. Um, so that song came out. So Rob came in with a little four-track demo he'd made of this song called, called Generator. And it was a lot slower, a lot more kind of, I suppose, Caribbean influenced than where it's ended up. It ended up a bit more mm. um, definitely Londonified. Um, and it had this um, this kind of, it had an acapella start, but it was different words. It was um, everybody gets down every once in a while. Music's where we turn to when we need to smile. Um, that was the original opening lyric to it, and it had that, and it was kind of a choral, an attempt at a choral thing that I don't think we could really pull off at gigs, which is probably, probably in hindsight, why we ended up changing it to the bit we could all sing. Um, and yeah, Rob, we had brought it in, and it was kind of three quarters done, and Alfie had a song that was a quarter done, and we literally merged them together, um, lyrically and structurally. And it worked really, you know, and then Generator happened. And we were playing at, what were we playing? It was the Dublin Castle in Camden. And they, I don't know if she still works there. They had a, a, a sound technician there who'd worked there forever. And we'd done loads of gigs there. And she's, she's really brutally honest about your shows and your songs. And we played this gig and we played Generator. And after the show, it finished things like that. And she just came up, she was like, guys, that, that song, it's that, that song, that generator song, it's amazing, but you need to, it needs to be punchier. You need to cut it down. And it was interesting because this is before we had the label, anything, no one like that's involved. And this is the first person sitting there saying, try and make it punchier. And we, so we did, yeah, that's when we cut it down. We cut down to the, to the guitar riff and then, and then the, and then 
just the acapella bit and then kicking straight in. And I remember that the first gig we played after that, cutting down a bit, and it was it felt like the audience already knew the song. It was it mm. was crazy, and and it actually ended it ended up getting released uh, three times, once by us ourselves. We pressed maximum of 500 copies I think it was 250 copies uh with a double a side uh with the idea of being like look let's let's get some interest in the band and you know this is great this is a great song we'll get out there wider if we do a little vinyl release so we did a little yeah seven inch release of that and then when we signed to the label it got released and the um it got released quite quickly and radio one came to us after it had been released and they were like we want you to they, they said, oh, this is a really good song. It was, it was released a month ago. And they said, oh, no, 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 we can't play it then. And so it, mm. it ended up that after we'd done Two Left Feet, uh, Zane Lowe uh, was a, quite a champion of the band at that time as well. And he came back and said, look, if you release it again, we'll pretend like you've never released it the first time. Oh, because uh, it, yeah. it wasn't on anyone's radar. It wasn't even on, I mean, you know, it wasn't even on NME's radar. I remember when, we, when it was re-released, we got Single of the Week in NME and we were like, well, you guys did us like fresh meat and stuff. Like, why weren't we? Yeah. Why didn't we know we released it already? And it, it really, whether it was a failure of the label or whatever. But then, yeah, it just took on a life of its own. That that um, summer in two thousand and seven, and we were in Newquay when it charted for the first time, and we got to go on the. You know, Alfie got a phone call, and they're like, "Do you want to go on the chart show and talk <laughs> about the song?" And and it was double A listed. I mean, I can I understand why people got annoyed with it because, uh, you know, it was it was in the top 10 of songs played on uk radio in 2007 which you know <laughs> and, it, and a catchy song it, it really will will do that yeah. but what, it was it's a brilliant song and that's what that's what made like you know propelled you up to the kind of the, the the big heights didn't it and the festivals and you know did did you enjoy that like going from kind of north london scene to suddenly playing some kind of big bills on festivals how was that i mean it was we were we were we were lucky that it happened and we were really lucky that uh we signed with a booking agent called um called matt bates and his only other band was baby shambles at the time and and he was like look sign with me i'll send you on tour with baby shambles and doing some big gigs so we 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 had a little bit of a grounding probably a little bit more of a grounding than other bands may have had when it suddenly happened for us so we suddenly, you know, we got on those, we were doing these bigger gigs as quite a small band, but, you know, first on a bill, we're not too many people, but, but yeah, it was for not, oh, such a good feeling. When you go out, when you go to Glastonbury and you're playing it and a load of your mates have turned up because they just bought tickets nine months ago and you have to be there mm, mm. Uh, and you're playing it and, and yeah, the, it's, it's otherworldly. I mean, it's everything that, that we set out as a band to achieve and we did. Uh, you know, it goes hand in hand. We really wanted those things, but we were super happy with a lot of the respect that we got from people as well that, that we weren't expecting. I mean, we we were kind of, I think when we started because of the live shows, a lot of people saw us as a lightweight kind of indie pop band and Generator, a lot of people saw us as a lightweight indie pop band. And then a lot of people either came to a live show and saw that the live shows were quite different. They were, you know, they were a lot louder, a lot faster, a lot more raucous than the album was. Uh, and also started listening to the album, which showed that, you know, a lot more depth to it. And I was really proud. Of it. I remember, I don't know if you've ever come across a publication, it was called Art Rocker magazine. Yeah, yeah. I remember it well, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, I mean, they were like pinnacle of cool stuff. And we played their gig, 
we played a gig of theirs at the Buffalo Bar before when we were on the you know, when we were we were the darlings of the of the whole London scene at that time. It was like these guys are definitely going to be signed. They're definitely going to do something. And they would have been really dismissive about us, really, really dismissive about us. They'd give us a chance because um, someone who did a promotions night in Nambuka also worked for them and was like, you know, these guys are really good guys. You've got to give them a chance. You'll be amazed. And we played the gig and the review in the magazine starts out. And it says the Holloways should be everything Art Rocker hates about the London scene at the moment. But seeing them live is you can see the passion and energy and vibe that come off. It is everything that's right with the music scene right now. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, and it was really reading that you think, well, we're doing something right here, guys. And, you know, we are. People are getting it. People are getting what we're getting. Those feelings that we're getting on stage are transcending to the audience. And, and did, did good reviews mean something to you? Because I guess I'm thinking about Mark Beaumont's review of your album, and he said it was, you know, the most informed, ecstatic, and goddamn best pop rock, guitar pop record of 2006 and that was quite a crowded market in 2006 guitar yeah. pop records so you proclaim the best so I guess what you're saying there it, it shows you were you were kind of paying attention to what the the press was saying and when you got a good review like that did it did it have a positive impact for you personally yeah I mean the positive every review had an impact to be honest we we never shied away from the bad reviews or the good reviews the good reviews gave you a huge huge boost and fortunately for us they outnumber the bad you know 10 to 1 uh, but the you know I mean yeah that review that Mark gave of the album was just I mean getting that we'd been trial we we knew it was going to get a high score uh, because they told us before but we didn't know what the review was going to be and yeah it was absolutely you know mind blowing and and it does because you know I think we were all we were part of the scene we weren't kind of you know, poets who'd gone and made these beautiful pieces of art and then brought them out of, of a box and a finished form. You know, we, we formed those music, that music in those live gigs. We formed the music together. And to have people say, respected people, people we respected saying, this is actually really good. It means a lot more than when your mum listens to it in the car and says, hmm. oh, I love that album. You know, you think this is great. And, and, and also you're getting respect to your peers. You mentioned the Paddingtons, you know, they, they, they were great friends of ours and, you know, to have Josh coming on tour with us just because he fancied hanging out a bit, that means a lot as well. Because actually, you know, these people that that we might have considered very different to us. I mean, you probably, you know, you, maybe people would say the Paddingtons were very different to the Holloways, but we really weren't in a live sense, and we certainly weren't on a people sense. Mm. So it was great to be able to to have that that peer to peer respect as well. Um, and it did mean a lot. Even the bad reviews meant a lot. I mean, I remember getting some really bad reviews and just really not questioning what we were doing because we had full belief in what we were doing, but it did make you think, well, what can we do a little bit differently? Because we want everyone to be able to enjoy the music. Of course, <laughs> someone's going to hate, hate what you do because that's the nature of humans. Like, everyone likes different things. And, and also that's, understanding that means that you can play every show without a weight of, oh my God, what if everyone hates this? Because there will be people that we play to live that have walked out of the room and gone, I don't know what everyone, what all the fuss is about. A generator song's rubbish. <laughs> oh, God. Mm, but, mm. you know, why be at our show if you're doing that? You're going to be the yeah, minority. Yeah. Um, and, but you have to accept that and just play the shows that you like. You can get bogged down in bad reviews and you can get too hyped up in good reviews. We were lucky because we were just hyped up all the time. You know, we, mm, mm. we said yes. If the, the more fun the thing sounded to us, the more likely we were to say yes. 
regardless of how big the gig was or small the gig was. You know, uh, we did a tour of um, of Lava and Ignite nightclubs <laughs> before we were signed because it was a thousand pounds a show, which was by far the most we'd ever been paid for a show, and a week's ready residency at a bar in Nambuka, uh, a bar in Nambuka. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and we were like, well, what? We get to go to Ibiza, and he was like, yeah. We we're like, amazing. Yeah, let's do it. And this is before Ibiza rocks. The year before mm, Ibiza rocks mm. started. And it was, it was just, you know, why not make the most of having an amazing time? And, and, and kind of speaking of which, you know, you mentioned earlier that you had the same agent as Pete Doherty, that name, Matt Bates, definitely yeah. rings a bell for me of when I was uh, trying to get stories about Pete Doherty and uh, <laughs> Libertines, the baby shambles, which is what yeah. I'm now going to try, we do, and try and do with you. We ask every guest we have on who has even a vague connection to, to, to Pete and the Libs and baby shambles, whether you've got a favourite kind of Pete Doherty story from back in the day. I mean, I suppose my favourite, it's hard, it, it's hard because we did actually, we did actually spend a lot of time with them and Pete was as you'd expect Pete to be. He was late, he was on time, he was high, he was sober, he was driving a Jag at 150 miles an hour at the motorway. You know, I mean, we did, um, well, but one of my favourite moments uh, was we were doing, and I suppose it's brought in my mind because of much sadder things that happened in this venue later, but we, we were playing at the Bataclan in Paris. Mm. Walking baby shambles and we'd gone on and done our gig and it was and pete wasn't there no one knew where pete was and uh no one's phone would work in france uh because we were all poor musicians uh apart from mine and the only phone number we'd get through to on, on was kate moss and we were, and so we ended so Ed, so i'm on the phone to kate moss trying to find out where pete doherty is in paris and whether he can get to the show <laughs> in time to play the show and he did, of course. Of course, he turned up in time. We we ended up going on again, and then he turned up. He played the gig. It was an amazing gig. And he and Rob actually got to go on. And Rob went on and played violin with him. Um, and we all got to kind of party around a little bit. And it was just kind of it was it was the way I remember my time with Pete, which isn't a lot. I mean, he probably doesn't even remember me, but the time that I remember him, he was he was a lot of fun. You know, we played Duke of Clarence shows with them. And he was a lot of fun. You know, he was, he had a very, very serious dark side. Obviously, we can all see that. But at those shows, when he was on stage and when he was backstage with friends, he was a, he was a good, fun guy who liked, loved at that point in time, was loving his music, playing music. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there are scarier times, like being locked out of dressing rooms because they want to do other nefarious things in that dressing room. And mm. then your dressing room, not their dressing room. I mean... I say play Monopoly or play Monopoly or a game of chess, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, exactly. Um, but Pete never, ever seemed to be the instigator of those kind of times. He was always the instigator of come on in or come on stage or what's that song you're doing? Um, and, you know, I'm trying to think of a better time. No, but it wasn't. I mean, that Paris one was just a really good time. And the backstage of it was really good because you had... Uh, you know, Kate Moss was there and the fashion designer Hedy Slamane was there, but they weren't there as Kate Moss and Hedy Slamane. They were there as like normal people. Mm. And, and he had that quality where he, those kind of famous people just ended up being part of, of that. You wouldn't have been there if you wanted to have some kind of pretense because you couldn't have had that mm. around mm. people at that time. We've talked about kind of, you know, your best day. You said they were great times, the chart success. But obviously, towards the end of the Holloways, you were a band beset by tragedy and bad luck in probably, you know, equal measure. You know, your label 
went bust, uh, which kind of messed up the release of your second album. The demos for which were in the fire at Nambuka, I believe, or some demos for some new tracks were in that fire. So how do you reflect on some of the more negative things, I think, that really derailed, I think, the the momentum that, that you had with, with the Holloways? I mean, it were really, really, really sad times. I remember, um, obviously, remember the, the, the label going bust. We were... Um, we we were mixing the second album when we got the call the label had gone bust, and and that was really kind of geez what we're going to do like how what what we're going to do now, uh, the, the guy that signed us had already left the label by that point and and it was really uh, you know we were a bit lost, um, but then the Nambuka fire I mean that was that really did rip the soul out of the band I mean that that was you know Rob and Dave at that point pretty much decided they didn't want to play, they, they couldn't play Holloway songs anymore. Um, although both of them have subsequently. Um, mm. But that was so much more because Nambuka for us was, it was our home. You know, we kept all of our equipment there. I mean, the demos and stuff you're talking about was, you know, Rob's little four track demo machine where his song ideas lived, was there. You know, Alfie's guitar that, that, he, that he'd been bought in the eighties was there and gone. You know, Dave's drum kit was there and gone. The only things that survived weren't in the building, you know. And uh, the only saving grace is that nobody nobody lost their lives in that fire. Mm. You know, lots of our friends lived above it. I mean, you mentioned kind of Kid Harpoon. He'd only just recently moved out. He may have still been living there at that time. Um, and many other people who are you know, still doing great things, but, you know, lost their lives, lost their jobs. And it was... You know, sitting in, sitting in a, the pub, the next pub up north on Holloway Road from from Nambuka, which we probably had only been to two or three times before, and having a beer and just more and more people just kind of coming in, checking in what's going on, what's happening, and phone calls from the enemy and phone calls from the sun and things like that. Being like, you've got to tell mm. them what happened. Mm. And it was just at that point in time, we didn't know what had happened. There'd been a fire that had burnt the entire building down. And as a band, it yeah it shook us more than the label going bust, because mm. the label going bust was something where we can go, we can still make the music, we can still do this, and and the fire, we we couldn't make music until we replaced the instruments. Mm. Uh, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't rehearse. We had to find a rehearsal room that we could go to and leave our stuff in because that's what we did. You know, we were a full time band. We didn't, you know, and and it really yeah, took the wind out of it completely. And you know, I remember Dave just being like, yeah, uh, we were in a Toby Carvery of all places. Uh, talking with him about carrying on and he was just like, don't think I don't think I can carry on. Um, and, and yeah, just, you know, it was a real gut punch, real, real gut punch, because that came after the label had gone bust as well. So we already had this huge delay in the mm. second album and then it was huge delay on any kind of touring stuff. Mm. Yeah, and then, and then it was just started very much from there to be to be over, I suppose. I mean, we're, we're, me and Alfie carried on as Holloways. We released the second album, and we did gigs and things like that. But it never, it never had that magic that those that those gigs had with with Rob and Dave. Mm. You know, mm. it was, you know, they the gigs were much more than the songs. You know, they, they were. You know, we did. We I always prided us on being, doing live shows. We always turned up for the audience. You know sick or dying or 
you know, I play, I played gigs with broken ribs and broken hands and, mm. and uh, you know, Alfie's played gigs where he's, before he's not been able to speak and then gone, gone on and did a blinding show and then not been able to speak for a week. On, hmm. When you were just saying uh, broken hands and whatever, just before we started pressing record on this, you did <laughs> mention that uh, there's something you wanted to say about, well, something we wanted to ask you definitely about uh, not going to hospital when you should have when, <laughs> when you were <laughs> in the Holloways. Tell us about that. I mean, so we, when we were fortunate enough to be big and touring on a, on a big tour bus that had two floors on it, the stairs in between the floors were metal. And when you're driving a tour bus, the, the power's on and the lights are on. But when they park and they plug in, the light they, the lights go off and then on uh, to when they switch over to, to landline power. And when the lights were on, I was at the top of the stairs. And when the lights came back on, I was at the bottom of the stairs. Mm. And our tour, tour manager put me in bed and I woke up and I was like, really, really sore. Really sore, like front, really sore. And we had a gig. And then I was like, we'll play the gig, it'll be fine, a couple of drinks. And two or three days go by and I'm, like, I'm not getting any better. And I said to him, we were in Liverpool and I went to I went to the hospital in Liverpool and the doctor does an exercise, you've got two broken ribs and one cracked rib. And I was like, yeah. And he said, what have you been doing? And I've been on tour, playing some gigs, play the bass. He's like, you've been walking around. Hmm. He's like, you just it's crazy. Like you shouldn't be like there's you know, you need to rest. And I, like, I can't rest. I've got gotta play these gigs. So I ended up, yeah, just a few pages. Just playing with breaking, breaking ribs and a cracked rib, just carrying yeah. on. Yeah, wow. got to do it. That's impressive. That's yeah, very that's... impressive. Well done on that one. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think just to return to the Holloway's kind of timeline, I guess, I speaking of breaking, yeah. you know, obviously the band decided to to break up. And by what you're saying, it was fairly inevitable by kind of 2011 that, that, this, that this happened. It was around that time. But you did play a final gig where I believe kind of all the members from down the years, all your, your kind of musical mates joined in and it sounded, I didn't make it to that show, but it sounded like an absolute riot up at the uh, the garage, uh, fittingly at the yeah. end of Holloway Road, right? Well, so yeah. what, what are your memories if you can piece them together from what I think was a pretty legendary night? Um, from <laughs> um, that was that that day started with me not being able to find our backdrop. Um, I think, I don't know, I still don't know where it was. So I was trying to spray paint a new Holloway's backdrop in the garage uh, with like four cans of spray paint and a big sheet and just getting told off by everyone. And it looked terrible. I remember that. Um, and yeah, I mean, the show itself, we, we'd done a, we'd done really hardly any rehearsal for it because it was very much meant to be just like, hey, let's just do a big party, invite everyone we know and tell everyone to invite everyone that we know um, and just make it the best show we possibly can. And and it really did work. I mean, what we supported by really good friends of ours, the Supernovas, who basically grew up in Nambuka. I think if you talk to Joey, I don't know how old they were. I swear, he really just had his thirtieth birthday. And I'm thinking, but how old were you in 2004 then? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, I suppose we could have had the opportunity to have someone be some a, a more famous person support us, but it wasn't about that. That gig was literally about it being a massive party celebration of everything that was that was Holloway's and that was part of our scene. So we had that and we play in our show. Uh, we hadn't trailed. I don't know if we could, I can't remember the timeline of social media, whether we could have told people who was going to come on stage, but we certainly hadn't. We hadn't advertised. We kind of said there'll be some guests, but we went on stage with the lineup as it was 
would have been. Mm. We only, um, but we only played three songs as that lineup, and then we got the you know, next person on, the next person on, and then I remember, I remember he, like people we went off stage and people were chanting for Rob, and they didn't. We didn't even really know people knew that he was there. I mean, he was, of course, he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we pushed him. And Rob, he was such a gentle soul. He never. He loved being on stage, but he never wanted the limelight. So, so we kind of had to push him out on the stage to be first out there. He was always, you know, oh, hi, come on stage, head down, kind of little bit, little. But we pushed him out on the stage, and the place just went off. I mean, we weren't even playing a song, and there was people crowd surfing and jumping and shouting and singing all the songs that we hadn't already played. And then that encore. Um, yeah, we played four songs and every single one. I mean, I don't think we needed to do more than play the first note for it because the mm. crowd were just so up for it and they just wanted to they just wanted to sing every single thing. And then people just kept coming out and we were never particularly precious about not having stage invasions. We were happy with people doing it and you know we were happy to try and play along as long as possible we could during a stage invasion. And that one. We literally, I think we got two songs out because everyone just wanted to hear the songs. And so more and more people came out. You know, Jay came on. You know, Caroline Flack was there. Um, she came out uh, with, we actually, because she was an ex-girlfriend at the time. And then we, like all the ex-girlfriends came out, which is a little bit weird, but kind mm. of fun at the same mm. time. Because yeah, like, weird. this is your life almost. Yeah, it was kind <laughs> this of This is your life in the Holloways. Yeah, it was. Because, I mean, Rob was, uh, Rob was still with, 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 with his girlfriend for the time the rest of us had all changed and they all kind of came out and it was like oh this is weird but kind of nice because everyone's friends and just mm. that celebration of, of the of the joy that music brought to us and to so many at that at that time and you could see in the faces you, you're seeing people who we saw at gigs in 2004 in the front row in their stained ripped white holloways t-shirt from 2006 mm. And then, yeah, 2011 or 12, whenever that was, and they're there at the front again, and you haven't seen them at a gig for months. And I mean, it, we came off stage almost like, we need to do more. We need to do more than this. Um, but obviously we knew that we couldn't. We knew that was a one-off kind of special thing, all those, but, but all the people that made it special for us. I mean, you talk about people that, you know, the kind of semi-famousest people that came along like Frank Turner and that, but I remember people like Danny and Thomas, um, and the various little DJ people that did it. There's these guys, the, um, what do they call themselves? Jeez. I remember one of them was called Dan and the other one was called Danny. And they were like little scenes to boys that are DJed everywhere. And they turned up at this gig and it was so good to see them. And all these people that made the gigs for us, you know, a girl called Laura Trouble, who, you know, she's now, she's an actress and making her own films and stuff. But at that time she was just a girl that we hadn't seen for ages because and she turned up at the gig and, you know, some wild uni friends turned up and, and it just felt like everyone who'd supported us over the years all came and had an amazing time, mm-hmm. which, which is just makes those gigs super, super special. I mean, it felt as big as, you know, the Astoria or Coco or, you know, any of those big shows, any of those big shows. And, and yeah, it was a uh, feeling I, I, there's a video of it i'm just trying, i'm just remembering the feeling of it it's amazing yeah yeah we, I, I can really feel that in what you're saying and i think quite poignant some of the things you've mentioned there you know about caroline flack obviously being there who, who tragically lost her life a couple of years back and obviously you know rob in in the band um just something i wanted to yeah. ask you about you know you've spoken um 
so wonderfully about him. I think I think during this interview, you can really kind of sort of feel the affection you had for him, and when he joined the band, and then kind of how he was the life and soul of the Holloways. But obviously, a few years later, he he did tragically lose his mm. life. So how do you how do you sort of reflect on that? I know it's been a few years now, but but how 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 do you sort of think back on that? And it's a, there's a combination, I think, of, of guilt and 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 then just the overwhelming good memories. I mean, any anyone. You know, to die of a heroin overdose and for one of your best friends to die of a heroin overdose when you didn't even know you had a heroin problem, you know, you think you start to kind of misjudge yourself. And then you, know, you have to reason with it. I mean, me, me and Rob hadn't been close for a few years at that point when he when he passed. Um, I overwhelmingly remember with Rob just just the joy that he brought to people. And I mean, it's sad to think and to have found out later how how troubled inside he found himself um, when you never would have got a sense of that at all. I, I, I uh, He played a gig for his own birthday party once at the Silver Bullet in Finsbury Park. And, um, and we, we hadn't seen each other for a while, but I really made it my purpose to go there. And weirdly, he'd had my bass amp for ages, so I was going to get that back up. And I turned up and... And we had a really good time. And I didn't know at that point in time, you know, he was really heavily into drug use at that time. Uh, but I wouldn't have known it. And I don't And I think, I don't know, it felt, it just felt really sad. You know, we'd all, unbeknownst to us when he'd got back to the UK, he'd been out of the UK actually in, um, in a rehab uh, before he passed away. And we didn't know he was in rehab. We just thought he was on holiday in Thailand. Mm, mm. Um, and we'd all actually been messaging to him. And we had a big meetup arranged uh, you know, for the kind of week after that he died. And it was just just this uh, an emptiness. It, it genuinely was something's missing now. I, I went to, I went, you know, I was living in Holloway and I went to the Keys and got a pint of Guinness and sat outside on Holloway Road. And it, and it you know, Holloway Road felt quiet for the first time in mm. the kind of mm. 10 years that I'd lived there. He, he, even though he wasn't living there, that's just his soul of, you know, yeah, it was heartbreaking and heartbreaking to think it was something so preventable, but almost unstoppable, you know, it's preventable mm. but unstoppable. Mm. And, you know, architect of his own demise from that point of view. But I guess you know it's it's, it's a, there's always been a dark side I think to the music scene. I think it was around London at the time. Sarah, I know from some of the interviews you've done with musicians from around that time, we've both and we've both been around bands. It's unfortunately a dark side that's there, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah. Well, talking about Pete Doherty, actually, when uh, when I was 17, I'd flagged an interview with with him, and he was sat sat next to me smoking heroin, and I didn't know what it was at the time. Uh, kind of came out of the room and my friend who I was with said, do you know what that was? And Chris was like, no. He said, oh, heroin. I was like, wow. And it really sort of, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, the drugs and, and that scene do do go hand in hand. I mean, you know, I referenced much earlier on about that I, I went, you know, I've moved away from Holloway because I wanted to be able to go home. And I know plenty of people, musicians and non-musicians who, who didn't do that and did end up being in that a lot. And yeah. I, but I know a lot of people as well who had to do what I did, which are literally like, actually, I, you know, I've got to break away from this. I can't be in that all the time. It's destructive. You know, you watch people self-destruct mm. and, you know, it was ubiquitous. You know, you, you, uh, you know, 
I'm not obviously not going to say people that were doing these things, but you know, you go to the DJ booth in the upstairs room at Coco, and and there'd be lines racked up with the DJ, you know, DJ playing a song, doing a line. So you want to walk in, do a line of it, walk back out again, and you think, you know, mm. just you know, and that's the tip of it. You know, I think cocaine really is, you know, that's the open side of it, let mm. alone the, the the much darker side when it. Well, that's, the, that's the attractive side right for a lot of people yeah. I think that that is very rightly or wrongly probably very wrongly actually I don't know what I'm saying <laughs> rightly but it's that that's the the glamorous side of the music industry I think and you know um that that a lot of people don't know that the darker side exists until you you kind of get it get a bit deeper and delve a bit deeper and and kind of see how you know I think the heroine I, I would always see, see that as someone who is deeply deeply troubled and almost feels that they've got no way out of of, of something and um yeah I find it just incredibly sad oh yeah I mean I couldn't agree more it's terrible when you watch like I say when you watch people starting to spiral and and particularly you know, for us we were probably saved a lot from it by by getting out quite quickly and being a touring band and you know mm. I, so we were out on that but you'd come back and someone would someone just wouldn't be around anymore you know whether they'd been in rehab or other thing or, or you'd see people becoming hollow versions of themselves and it's like this this guy's not just doing a little bit of coke on on a saturday night you know something mm. else is happening mm. yeah it's terrible to watch to watch that happen and that's it and it to get it does get really really glamorized you know, and and like you said, you found yourself saying rightly or wrongly, and it's not rightly that it's glamorized, but it is, and a lot of a lot of people certainly at that point in time were doing it. Um, mm. Yeah, and there was very very little done to stop it, and I think you know there's very much surface skimming by by bouncers and, and police. I think it was quite mm. you know because everyone saw it as that. Oh, it's the nice party side, right? And it's like well, even if even if you look at, I remember back then, even if the the kind of look people were going for, they called it heroin chic, yeah. because because everyone wanted to look really pale and gaunt and skinny and and horrible. And you know, it's that kind of Kate Moss going back to her again. I think yeah. you know when she got she got caught doing cocaine uh, when she was in the studio with Pete. And I remember she lost a couple of contracts quite quickly, but then very, very quickly won some different contracts. And I think that yeah. sends a very bad message, if I'm honest, um, to, to people who are looking up to someone like that as a role model, um, because, you know, it's, it's not a good thing, is it? I mean, it's, I, a very, it's a very addictive, uh, it's a very addictive thing. And you know, if suddenly, you know, everyone's doing it, well, then there's a real, pro real problem, isn't there? Well, yeah, yeah, they're definitely, and there definitely will have been a lot of people, a lot more people than I was even aware of in that time with a big problem. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think you find it, particularly in London, it's quite easy to hide it. You know, a lot of people do it. So therefore you might be the person that's out seven nights a week, but you're with different people all those different nights of the week. 100%. No one's aware of, of your problem. Like I said, I think we were lucky and, and there was a period of time where none of us lived in Holloway. A day was living in Crouch End. Alfie was living, uh, up in Highgate, uh, Rob had moved down to Chelsea with his uh, with his girlfriend, and I'd moved out to Golders Green because all of us went. You know what? You know we need to. Um, you know, we need space from this. I mean, like I said, we were lucky in the band. You know, if drugs were a very, very, very minimal part of the Holloways in terms of the, our inner circle, very minimal. Um, you know, I'm not going to say there were no drugs because that would be lying, but there. You know, it, we certainly weren't a druggy band, and I, we didn't mm. know those bands. Mm. 
druggy, but luckily enough, we weren't one. So I guess what are your endearing memories of, of Rob then? I think to bring it to bring it back to, to where we kind of began with that with that sort of part of your story. So there's one memory that really sticks in my mind, and it was we were we were rehearsing in in Nambuka, and Rob was living in Chelsea at the time, and he bought himself a motorbike to ride to get to get to rehearsals quickly. And one day he's really late, really late. Well, what are you doing? And he's like, my bike's been nicked. It's nowhere. I've looked everywhere. I'm sorry, I'm mm. late. He's, mm. It's gone. And we're like, no one would have nicked your bike, mate. It's a 50-pound Honda. Like, no one wanted that bike. And then about six weeks later, maybe seven, maybe eight, he gets a phone call or it's at rehearsals, and it's the police. And they go, Mr. Skipper, mm. yeah, we found your bike. Said, oh, great, where? And it was on the street you lived on. <laughs> it was to the right of his house, or better to the left. <laughs> and I can say this definitely, definitively. To the day he died, he maintains... Someone went to his street with a flatbed truck, picked his bike up off the street, stored it for <laughs> weeks, and put it back just a little bit further away than where he thought it was. <laughs> and it was just a typical skipper, just like, what are you doing, man? Or... I was going to say, is that is that just uh, typical of how he was? Yeah, he was just so scatterbrained at times <laughs> and things like that. Because he just, you know, his focus was just everywhere. His focus was on everything, everywhere, apart from where he locked his bike up. Mm-hmm. On his road. On it, yeah, on his road. On his road. <laughs> so I guess during this interview, I guess to, to bring things sort of more to a close, you know, we've talked about the brilliant highs of forming the band and the chart success you had and, and some of the really bad luck and the tragedy that kind of befell you later on. But I guess the question we kind of want to end on is, I noticed recently there was a propaganda tour booked in for this year with Reverend the Makers, friends of Demo Tapes, um, and future heads and a certain Holloway's. Does, so does that suggest that there's another chapter yet to be written? Obviously that tour's had to be shelved because of COVID, but does that um, indicate you're back? I would, definitely wouldn't say it would indicate we're back. Um, you know, we're good friends. We were good friends with Reverend The Makers and enjoyed many propaganda nights playing things. They came in with a suggestion of a tour that we thought sounded like, just sounded like great fun. You know, Dave was really into doing it. Don't think we'd have done it if Dave didn't want to do it as well. Um, and there was talk at one point of, uh, of Frank Turner playing guitar for us on it. But I think that was very much uh, pub talk. Um, no, we always wanted to do things that sounded fun and that we wanted to do. And this just sounded like a great opportunity to get together and play the songs that we loved again. There was no intention to be making new music. It was just about going out and having fun with two bands that we respected were our peers at the time, probably had, you know, relatively similar chart success to those two bands. I mean, obviously longevity, no, no worries in admitting they've had probably a long longevity than we had, but it was about getting out there and, and having a good time and giving fans a good time as well. We regularly get messages and emails and things like that from people saying, we really want to see you on tour or I've just discovered you or, you know, I watched you when I was, yeah, I listened to your album when I was 13 and never got to watch a live show. Are you ever going to do a live show again? And it seemed like a really good opportunity to give people a really good show rather than us trying to cobble together a little tour with, you know, some, some Nomad band that we would, uh, that, that wouldn't be that. You know, it was a, a rare opportunity to give a real good show to people again. Yeah. Amazing mm. lineup. And I hope it happens. Do you think it's going to happen eventually after, after everything gets, well, when everything gets back <laughs> to normal, whenever that may be, we don't know, do we? I mean, I hope, I think for that tour, it's looking a lot more like it'd be 2022. Yeah. Um, because Reverend the Makers have got loads, loads of stuff already booked up in 2021. 
which is why it's had to be shelved because uh, it just mm. getting rescheduled and they, then it then clashed with one of their own tours. Uh, but yeah, we're still in touch with, with propaganda. You know, and hopefully, with fingers crossed, it will happen. Mm. Right. Well, Rick and I will definitely be down there. At, at the front, <laughs> down the front, along. right? Yeah, absolutely. With our, <laughs> if, if with our we, pint of beer that, going yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Not too old for that, Rick. Yeah. We, we, yeah, it's been, been great chatting, Bryn. And we, yeah, we, we really do hope you get back on the road and we see you again, because I think the world is, deserves to hear these songs again. And the sort of songs I think the world needs to hear at the moment, to be honest. The, the kind of the fun and the... Particularly Generator. I think, no, you, Sarah, you've been singing Generator all day, right? We just would love to hear that live again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, but yeah, thanks for joining us, Bryn. No, thank, thank you. It's been great. I think the first thing we need to, to say uh, about this interview is uh, just, you know, thank, thanking Bryn for coming on to the show. And like we said in the interview, we did cover a lot of different topics, including some pretty raw uh, topics. And... Uh, you know, it's it was it was great to be able to kind of delve a bit deeper into that. But you know, I, I, you could see it's it's hard for him to talk about. It's still really raw, isn't it? Yeah, I totally agree with this, Sarah. I think a big thanks to to Bryn for coming on the show. And I think you know, as you said, it's important when you're talking to a band that you do kind of cover the beginning, the middle, and the end. And and sometimes it's it's not always the easiest thing to talk about. Some of it can be sort of quite raw. And I think particularly around you know with with Bryn and the Holloways, you know, Rob Skipper's. Uh, death you know it's a few years after after they split and um yeah I thought it was just really really kind of sad to hear particularly that I think they didn't necessarily know what was kind of going on with him so yeah I, that was for me a bit of an untold story yeah I mean I think that was that's that's always the really sad bit isn't it when he did say he felt guilt and it made me feel really sad for him because of course you're going to feel guilt if if something like that happens to someone that you were once very close to. I know that he said he hadn't seen him for, for a while before it actually happened. Um, well, properly anyway. I know he did see him, but not kind of not being friends, they sort of lost touch a bit. But I can imagine the guilt that you'd feel. But, you know, I, I don't... It's always a really hard one, isn't it? Because it's not... I, sometimes there's nothing you can do, you know, when in, in these sorts of situations. And it was, it was tough to, to hear, that was. It kind of opened on more of a positive note. And I think for me, it was great to... Um remember some of that stuff around the North London scene you know I think I mentioned a couple of episodes ago I've had quite a nomadic life right I think at last count I've lived in like 15 houses in about five different cities across my life and one of the the first times I moved to London was I moved to Archway kind of Holloway area a road called Kingsdown Road which is literally two or three streets up from from the Nambuka um, and yeah I mean the night that Nambuka burned down and when we say burned down it didn't like burn down as in the whole building disappeared it was basically gutted by fire I mean I was working for the enemy at the time on the news desk I was a news reporter and I think I basically heard the sirens coming down the road I heard you know I heard the fire engines I heard the commotion and I kind of went into journalist mode I went out saw that this like legendary music venue was on fire and then was grabbing firemen for interviews and local residents and piecing it together I think it's the first time in my career and possibly the last time where I actually felt like a, a serious journalist, not a music journalist, but like someone who was reporting for the for the BBC or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it, it had a real impact on the North London scene because Nambuka was a real hub for the kind of North London music scene. I think the saddest thing for me around that was walking past it like in the days and weeks afterwards where normally you go past there'd always be music on day or night, whatever kind of time of day or night. And then the music kind of, um, kind of stops. But yeah, you, you were around the London scene 
similar-ish time I think did you did you ever go to Nambuka what are your memories of going to that that venue yeah definitely I mean I I almost nearly uh went to London Met Uni which was on Holloway Road um Mm. and I was thinking actually yesterday when we were when we were doing this interview how different my London experience would have been if I'd have gone there as opposed to South Bank Uni which was more south um because there was definitely a a divide a north-south divide in London at that time and there were different scenes in different places so I could potentially have had a completely different uh, different kind of time in London and, and life, really, if I'd have gone to Holloway Road, um, to uni on Holloway Road. And maybe I would have even probably, knowing me, would have would have been in the in the same crew as Laura Jean Marsh in the Holloways. Um, but it was kind of one of those like sliding doors moments, I guess, where it didn't actually happen. But I did used to go up there. Yeah, of course, because uh, it wasn't far away, really, from where I used to kind of live and hang out. Um, I can't remember at all what bands I saw there. You know, it's very, very kind of vague memory. But um, I used to go up there quite a lot and go to Pure, Pure Groove Records uh, that both Laura um, and Bryn had talked about. I think I got one of my first seven inches from there. Um, I might have said this on the show before, and, and again, I can't remember what it was. Uh, but mm. yeah, hundred percent. And it was very North London, like a typical North London pub, like which are very, you know, if you if you've been to London or you live in London, you'll know that even in like you know East London, South, North, and West, even the style of the pubs are very very different. Um, but yeah, it was it, to me, it felt like a very indie, indie, indie place. Like, oh no, I remember who I saw there. I saw the Claxons there. Um, oh, okay. For some reason, they were up there playing because I was, you know, all about Claxons and New Cross and, you know, New Cross, New Rave scene and, and things like that. Because I think I'd, I'd said I knew Simon back from Nottingham, back from when before he was in the band. So that was my crew. <laughs> um, hmm. But we all went up to, you know, turf, say, t- talking about turf wars, we all went up to Nambuka when they played there. Um, it was a great night. And yeah, I saw the Claxons in places like Camden as well. So they, they were definitely going all around London at the time. It's interesting you mentioned there about the turf wars. That was the other thing I thought was was great in that interview that I think that we didn't realise, or you know, certainly I didn't realise at the time. When you think of turf wars, you think of hip hop, you think of grime, you think of postcode wars. I didn't think of indie bands having turf wars in terms of, well, you're North London, get off our East London turf. You know, I thought that was, um, yeah, it was like something out of uh, an American hip hop film, wasn't it? Yeah. But it's it's I didn't even really think about that either. And one of the other things I thought it was interesting he was saying was jealousy. Um, you know, when you when when bands were all kind of playing the same lineups and then all of a sudden one got catapulted to to the spotlight, like the Wombats, he said. Um, mm. And it was, weird, it was really weird to think about how what was there's no seems like no rhyme or reason for that because one band isn't necessarily better than the better than the other you no know i think it was though it was such a crowded market that it was hard to stand out and i also think enemy you know and I'll, I'll totally admit to this enemy always played a role in this enemy was always about pitting band a against band b band a this band have told i did this multiple times with different bands this band have been slagging you off what do you think of that or Often when a new band would emerge, we'd say, well, this band are a total reaction to that scene. This arty band are blowing away all the lad rock bands. Or this lad rock band, who are all about fun, are now blowing away all the arty bands. So I think Enemy definitely had a part to play in that. And that was what was fun about the music press. You know, well, it was like being the kid in the schoolyard saying, you know, do you realise that guy's just been slagging you off? You should probably go and beat them up. You, know? you sound like a bully, Rick. <laughs> you, could, <laughs> you probably ruined lots of people's lives. <laughs> and, you, and you took great enjoyment out of that. Oh, I don't think you should be admitting that. But um, that's that was the job, I guess, wasn't it? 
Yeah. I know you want well. to talk about your enemy days at some point, don't you? So maybe we'll maybe we'll focus on that in another episode. Yeah, I think we could cover that on a future episode because uh, yeah, I've never really given the full kind of backstory of how I got into that and some of the stories that uh, came came about as a result. And frankly, I'm noticing a lot of my peers from that time are popping up on podcasts and doing the same. So if they can do it, then uh, then why can't I? But yeah, the final thing I was going to bring up about the Holloways before time gets the better of us um, is I just hope that they do reform and tour. It's such a shame that they were booked on that tour with Reverend the Makers, a propaganda tour and with the Future Heads and. You know, that was set to happen this March. COVID's happened. As Bryn explained, they now can't get that lineup back together again because they've all got kind of sort of conflicts later in the year. But don't know about you, but um, yeah, the minute the Holloways announce a reunion tour, a reunion gig, I'll definitely be looking to get tickets just because they were so fun live back in the day. And it'd be good to see if they could sort of recapture that. And if there's anything we need at the moment in a live performance, it's just that sense of fun and energy, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'll definitely uh, be there with bells on. I've said with bells on so many times today, but uh, it's it's very true. I'm quite excited about this. But yeah, I guess uh, that's probably a good place to, to close this week. But before we do, uh, we said at the top of the show, get in touch. But if any listener has forgotten our contact details, how can they get in touch with the show? You really want people to get in touch, don't you, Rick? Uh, yeah, I need, absolutely. I need some new friends. Yeah, <laughs> new friends. <laughs> we want to build during lockdown, aren't you? Um, yeah, demotapespod at gmail.com or at demotapespod on Instagram and Twitter. And as well, just doing my usual thing. I don't know why I always have to ask for five, beg people for five star reviews on iTunes, Rick. I might give this to you in the future. But uh, yeah, it really does help us, uh, as you might know. Uh, we've got quite a few five star reviews on there already. So thank you to anyone who's helped with that. But if you haven't, it takes two seconds if you're listening through the, the podcast app on your phone. So please, please, please help us out and uh, get us back in the charts. Yeah, and if you hit subscribe as well, you'll get the episodes as soon as they drop. And I don't want to curse this, but we're definitely looking at another episode with a band from 2001, perhaps the biggest band to emerge from 2001. Uh, won't curse it, but it's uh, in the works. If you want to hear that as soon as it drops, hit subscribe. But otherwise, yeah, time's got the better of us this week. Um, so take care, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.